The U.S. Census Bureau says that 32% of Americans are saving for retirement in a 401k despite that 79% work for a company that offers a 401k. And those who do contribute aren't putting away enough. The average balance in a 65-year-old's 401k is $200,000, which sounds like a lot, but if you spread that over 25 years, because statistically speaking, one in four 65-year-olds will make it to 90. That's $8,000 a year. Throw in Social Security, that's $24,000 a year. That's barely above poverty level. Throw in that you then got to spend $7,500 a year on health care expenses. And as I often see in my practice, it's patients making the decision between food or medication. And so in the words of Larry the Cable Guy, we ain't getting her done. Many folks' physical 401k could be stamped insufficient funds. There's not going to be a lot of happy folks on retirement day because of that. As I say, what's true physically is true spiritually. How are Christians doing with regards to the only 401k that matters? The one over the industrial and commercial bank of heaven. So consider these deposits. With regards to money, tithers make up 10 to 25% of any given congregation. Average given is 2.5% of income. And do you know that during the Great Depression it was 3.3%? We're given less than we were as churches when the Great Depression was here. With regards to time, 50%, 56% of Southern Baptist members have medium to low level of involvement in their church and 1 in 10 evangelicals, that's born again, really committed Christians, 1 in 10 prays monthly or seldom never. What about people? 95% of Christians have never won a soul to Christ and 80% don't consistently witness. In the words of Larry the Cable Guy, they ain't getting her done. And many Christians' spiritual 401k could be stamped in sufficient funds and there's going to be a lot of unhappy folks come retirement day. I put up here two little cartoons. One's a bear and it can't hibernate, can't sleep and it says if I knew what our 401k was doing I could sleep. The next one's a little more hits home. Doctor is telling the patient for your stress test just log on to your 401k. And so let me get real personal real quick. Does the account balance in your spiritual 401k keep you up at night? The thoughts of logging on to your spiritual 401k to check the balance give you chest pains. Does it concern you that you'll have adequate deposits in your spiritual 401k come retirement day when you stand before Jesus? If so, then this message this morning is for you. And so we're going to look at this, the Christian's 401k. If you don't hear anything else, there's three main parts of this. There will be a few others, but the parable that we're going to look at, the principle, and the portfolio. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 13 to 21. Luke writes, Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful, and he thought to himself. Now listen to his language. What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You hear the problem with his language? It's me, myself, and I. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be? As I said, you won't get depressed. Think about what other people are going to do with all your stuff and all your money after you're gone. Amen? So, and this is the big principle that Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We have two options in this life. We can be rich towards self or we can be rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for this opportunity to stand in your pulpit, Father, and proclaim it. I pray, Father, you would hide me behind your cross. Father, that I would decrease and you would increase because your people need to hear from you today. And so I pray that you would give us spiritual ears to hear through the power of the Holy Spirit what you would have to speak to us today that we can leave this place different than we entered it. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name that I pray. Amen. Amen. And so let's go through this passage. And so I want to tell you first the pettiness the pettiness. Look at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In context, Jesus is in the midst of some heavy teaching. If you look back at verse 1, he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Verse 4, he says, Don't worry about those who can kill you, and after that have nothing more they can do. And then in verse 8 and 9, he says, Be sure that you acknowledge Jesus here on this earth, or I will deny you one day in heaven. That's some heavy stuff, isn't it? And so out of the wild blue yonder, somebody in the crowd blurts out quite the petty demand. In fact, I think it's downright rude, don't you? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So much for grieving, huh? Didn't really care much about his dad. You wonder, has this guy, as I jokingly say, has this guy really been listening or waiting to talk? Y'all know folks like that? They're not really listening to the thing you're saying. They're just really waiting to talk. I have had this happen in my office daily for 20 years. I'm teaching somebody about their diabetes because their sugars are 400. And they're like, well, man, what are you going to do about this hangnail? And I'm like, did you hear anything I said? I'm trying to keep your kidneys alive. I'm not worried about the hangnail. Or I'm telling them that the symptoms that they have, there's a high likelihood it could be heart disease or cancer. And they say, well, what are you going to do about this rash I've had for two years? And I'm like, have you been listening to anything I have said? The worst is I think we still act petty like this in the church and in our individual lives today. And let me give you some examples in the church. We take, as I say, level three doctrines, things that really in the grand scheme of things don't matter to a hill of beans, and we make them level one. Level one is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way. And unlike what the Pope says, Christians and Muslims do not uh, worship the same God. Amen? Those are level ones. These are things we're going to hold up high, and you can kill us, but you're not going to take them from our hand. We take these petty little doctrines and we elevate them to level one. And what did Paul say? My desire when I come to you is that there would be no divisions amongst you. And we sit here and we fight over petty stuff. Let me give you an example in our lives. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. We take a thimble full of unforgiveness and bitterness 
against someone else and a lot of times against a Christian brother or sister and Jesus Christ has forgiven us of an ocean of things. Amen? Amen. And uh, Paul cured us of that in Ephesians 4.32. He said, Be tenderhearted, kind to one another, forgiving each other as Christ forgave you. If I'm expecting Jesus to forgive me of a whole ocean of stuff, I sure can't hold, be petty and hold a thimble full of unforgiveness against someone else. And so God cure us of our pettiness. And so look at what Jesus says next in verse 14. He said to him, Man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And so Jesus rightfully rebukes this man. He calls him man as if he was a stranger. So why did he rebuke him? Well, first off, he had the audacity to command Jesus and tell him what to do. Don't we sometimes do the same thing? Now Jesus, this is really what I want you to do in my life. I don't know what your will is, but this is my will, right? We got that backwards. Second, he's already decided the case and wants a judge to see it his way. Don't we sometimes do that? Now, Lord, this is really how I want it to go. This is what I've already decided is the right way. And finally, Jesus has bigger fish to fry. This ain't people's court. You think Jesus came to settle petty domestic disputes? And so that's why he says, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Well, doesn't Scripture say that Jesus is judge of the living and the dead? That's what it says in 2 Timothy 4.1. But the point was, in his first coming, he came as what? Lamb and Savior. The second, he's coming as lion and as judge. As Calvin says, he came to divide souls of men, not inheritance. As Moore said, he came to bring people to God, not property to people. And so thus, Jesus' next words, look at what he says in verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let me ask you, is the desire for justice wrong? No. Is it wrong to sue even as a Christian for one's financial rights? Yeah. I would argue if you're uh, suing a fellow brother and sister, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, you really ought not to do that. But God is a God of justice, right? And so the, but the man's motivation, is it really justice? No. What's his motivation? Greed and covetousness. And so Jesus, the one who tests the righteous, who sees the mind and the heart, gets right to the heart of the matter and takes this man's rude interruption and uses it as a teachable moment. And he would that every single follower of his would be inoculated against the deadly virus of greed and covetousness. Thus his warning. There he says, beware. That word in the Greek was used of a military guard. Stand watch of a shepherd keeping watch over its flock. And this is a present imperative. In other words, he says, stay on your guard, stay on your guard, stay on your guard, stay on your guard against greed and covetousness. And let me put it in a way you might understand. If you get a, sh uh, a shot for shingles, you know how often you have to do that? Once. You know how often you have to get a shot against the flu? Every year, right? Jesus would say we need a daily shot against greed and covetousness. That's what he's saying. And you say, well, I ain't rich. And I say, baloney. You live in America. I've been to Guatemala. I've been to Ecuador. I've been to Africa 12 times. And many of you in here have done the same. And you know well in your heart that we are better off than 98% of the world. And so, yes, we are rich. And we need to be on our guard against covetousness. Think about it. What season are we in? Christmas. What do the kids want? 
952 gifts under the tree. What do the adults want? 952 gifts under the tree, right? And so we need to guard against that. And that's what Jesus' point is. And so the problem is not that we possess things. The problem is when things possess us. Listen to this Roman proverb. It says, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Don't you see that with a lot of people in our American society today? And that's Jesus' point. The word there, covetousness, exactly means that, to thirst for more. And notice he says all covetousness because it takes many, many different forms. And so the problem is not that we possess things. And then the second thing is the problem is that we have no concern over eternal things. I'm thankful for a dad that taught me that life does not consist of the abundance of my possessions. John Wesley's rule of life was this. Make all you can so you can save all you can and you can give all you can. And so let's look at the parable. Look at what Jesus says. He told them a parable because of this to guard against covetousness saying the land of a rich man produced plentiful. There's two actors in this little mini movie. This parable of the rich fool, rich man, and God. And you don't find God in too many Hollywood movies anymore, do you? So the first actor is the rich man. Again, we have to understand it's not wrong to be rich. You can probably think of a lot of people in Scripture that were rich. Abraham, Job, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea. Look at the women in Luke 8. And I'm not saying planning for retirement is necessarily wrong or unwarranted, but note this is the only time in Scripture where it's spoken of and in context it's disapproving. You know what Byron always says? For a Christian, retirement is out of this world. Now that's a double play on words because one, it's out of this world. It's actually almost a triple play and when you get there, it's going to be out of this world because no eye has seen and no ear heard the things that God has prepared for us. Amen? And then when is it that we actually get to retire as Christians? The day God says you've drawn your final breath. In Psalm 92 it says even in their old age they will bear fruit. And so we don't just sit back, eat bonbons and be done. The problem is deeper. It's when we drink of the salty water of riches and thirst constantly for more. We give zero attention to things spiritual to store up zilch in our spiritual 401ks. And that was this man's very problem. Think about the word sin. S I-N. What's in the middle of it? I. As I say all the time, we live in a meocentric universe and the center of the entire universe is Buffy J. Cook. That's how a lot of times, even as Christians, we act. It was said, Edith lived in a little world bounded on the north, south, east, and west by Edith. And so did this man. Listen to what he says. Verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentiful Let me ask you, how did that happen? Where did the dirt come from? God. Where did photosynthesis come from? Where did the rain, the seeds, where did the, the, the farm equipment, where did this man's brain, his hands, his legs, the plentiful harvest, where did it all come from? God. Yet there's not so much as a nod of acknowledgement or gratitude because look at what he says, verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? No parable is so full of the words I, me, my, and mine. There's 11 personal pronouns 
in this. A little schoolboy was asked, what parts of speech are me and mine? And he answered, aggressive pronouns. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that, isn't it? This guy was aggressively self-centered. He gave zero credit where credit was actually due. And so look at what he says in verse 18. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods. He doesn't even want to take another square foot of his property and build a fifth or sixth barn. He just wants to keep them going higher and higher and higher to heaven. Does that sound familiar, the Tower of Babel? I mean, does this sound familiar? Your heart's a dead tomato splotch with moldy purple spots, Mr. Grinch. Your soul's an appalling dump heap overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up in tangled up knots. That's this guy. When you say, well, let's cut him some slack. He's just making a good business decision. Okay, let's do that. How much does it look like he was willing to share with someone who was hungry? Does he say, now I'm going to build all these bigger barns and now I've got this stewardship plan. I'm going to go out and I'm going to start a non-profit thing. I'm going to start a food pantry. There's nothing that tells us that at all, is it? It made me think of uh, the beggar that was uh, outside uh, the rich man's gate, Lazarus. Do you remember that? He wouldn't even so much as give him a crumb off of his table. That's this guy. And so look at what he says, verse 19. He says, I'll say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You know what this is? This is the YOLO attitude. You know what YOLO is? You only live once. YOLO is a fantasy not based in scriptural reality. Because the truth is not YOLO, you only live once. It's yoked. You only live twice. Because there's another life, amen? And so, here he comes saying he's not going to do anything for anyone else. And Jesus' exact point is this. The Christian life is not the ascetic life. It's not that we eat stale bread and water and never have a filet mignon. Do you think it's God's will that you never have a nice steak dinner? No. I hope not. I need to repent. <laughs> you don't wear tattered clothes and never buy new ones, ladies. I threw that one in there first because the next one I got in there, Kim. You don't hunt all your life on public land. Never go pay a big, shoot a big buck up in Illinois. Amen? <laughs> the Christian life is the abundant life. And it may have some temporal spiritual blessings. But when we give zero zilch, not attention to eternal spiritual blessings, you know what we are? Fools. Educated fools, but fools nonetheless. And so this man's 401k is booming. But his spiritual 401k, you know what it looked like? It was drier than the Sahara Desert. Because he had laid up nothing. And he forgot that one day the second actor in this mini-movie, this parable, is going to make a grand entrance and his name is God. Look at verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Do you think it's harsh that God calls this man and any who follow his suit a fool? Not when we stop and consider that there's a day already on God's calendar for Buffy Cook in which I'm going to have to stand before God and I'm going to have to give an account for myself. 
And I'm going to have to give an account. Listen to me, dads. I'm going to have to give an account for how I ran my household. My wife's not going to be there. I'm not going to be able to pull along a pastor or a buddy or anything like that. It's going to be me and God one-on-one. And I'm going to have to give an account for myself, and each and every one of us will. And so that leads to the principle. Look at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So Jesus teaches us the principle is this. You've got two options. You need to be rich toward self or rich toward God. Because there's coming a time, like I said, in which we're going to stand before God and give an account. And you say, why ain't it just enough to be saved, to be going to heaven? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. <coughs> I'm get there. 514. This is one of my favorite verses to use, particularly when we go on mission trips. You say, ain't enough just to be saved, go to heaven. What difference does it make if I don't get any rewards? We sang about Jesus being worthy earlier, didn't we? Is Jesus, what He has done for you, and who He is, not just what He's done for you, but who He is, is that not worthy of your entire life? And everything that you could do to bring Him the rewards. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The passion for us to earn these rewards should be what Jesus did for Buffy Cook on the cross and what He does for me every day of my life. Amen? So we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at the portfolio. So we've looked at the parable, looked at how this guy was laying up zero in his spiritual 401k. We looked at the principle, there's really only two options, that you can be rich toward self or rich toward God. And so now we're going to look at the portfolio. So I want to ask each of us this morning, how's your 401k? Is it something up until now you've even had your eye on? Is it your heart's desire to be rich toward God? to expand your spiritual 401k as big as possible so that you have the best to give to Jesus because that's what He deserves on the day of accounting. So let's get to investing. I'm going to give you three things to invest. The first is your money. And three things under this. First is give to God's work. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to do some preacher aerobics here this, through this part of the portfolio. You know what preacher aerobics is? Where you're flipping through your Bible. Matthew 6, 19-21. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The best banks on earth are going to eventually what? Go broke. Only industrial and commercial bank of heaven will never fail. Think about it. Do you want FDIC or FDIH? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or you want the Federal Deposit insured in heaven? Empty tomb, 
Incorporated, which is out of Champaign, Illinois, has been tracking church giving for years. In 1968, the average per capita given was 3.05% of disposable income. 30 years later, it was down to 2.62% of disposable income. And so ask yourself, I don't know how much you're giving to the Lord. But whatever it is, you think of that number, just whatever, 5%, 10 11 2 I don't know. Ask yourself, is that percent, 2.5%, all I want to enjoy for all eternity? Now turn to 1 Timothy 6.17. Remember, I already told y'all we're rich, right? Y'all might be thinking, well, I ain't seen it in my bank account, but I told you we live in America. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. As for the rich in this present age... That would include all of us that all got here in nice, comfortable clothes and all got here in nice, warm vehicles to come to a nice, warm building. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here it is. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. You know it's often said you can't take it with you? But I think that's wrong. You know why? Because you can store it ahead. Amen? Amen? You can't take it with you, but you sure can store it up. Listen to this. The National Opinion Research Center of the University of Chicago. The poorest fifth of church members give 3.4% of their income. How much do you think the richest one-fifth of church members give? 1.6% of income. The poorest fifth give three times as much as the richest fifth. Obviously, a whole lot of Christians have either never read 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, or they don't believe it. Amen? So with regards to your money, give to God's work. Second thing is give to God's workers. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42, even if you give one of these, He's talking about disciples a cup of cold water you will not lose your reward in Galatians 6 6 to 7 this is what we read the one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches do not be deceived God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap so give to God's workers. That includes, but it's not limited to pastors, missionaries, evangelists. A pastor preached a, a sermon on free salvation and he asked Deacon Jones to pass the offering plate. And he said, well, just a minute, preacher. You said salvation was free. Free is the water we drink. He said, it sure is. It's free. And so is water. But when we pipe it to you, somebody's got to pay for the plumbing. Somebody's got to pay for the plumbing, Right? You want to invest in something that pays off forever, pay for some plumbing. Pay for some of God's workers. And as I tell folks, you know where you pay? Where you eat. After lunch. If you go and you get a new Impossible Whopper down at Burger King, you're not going to go over to McDonald's and pay the bill, are you? And so if you're primarily being fed here at Hope, then your primary money that should be given is where? Hope. 
So give to God's work, give to God's workers, give to God's worthy. Look at Luke 12, 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. We need to simplify our lifestyles and enhance someone less fortunate by selling off some stuff or giving it away. You say, oh, I don't know, I ain't got anything. Do what my wife and I did this morning and go open your coat closet and you'll be ashamed. Because we got 15 coats in there that no one has touched since it turned cold and somebody somewhere can use them. Amen? Amen. Go home, clean out your drawers, clean out your closets and go give it to somebody. Don't sell it, go give it to somebody. Amen? Simplify our lifestyle. Luke 14, 12 to 14. This is another one with regards to reward. Listen to what Jesus said. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, crippled, lame, blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Here it is. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know, I think one of the things that's been lost on us, particularly in 21st century America, is Christian hospitality. You know, quit worrying about hurrying up and getting out of church and everybody watching their watch. And I'm not talking about y'all. I'm talking, I see this all the time. I've seen people, I don't care if the pastor, I mean, in the most impassioned plea for people to get saved. That's the most important thing we're here for outside of worshiping Jesus, right? Is folks to get saved. And an impassioned plea for people to get saved, they look at their watch and they go, it's 12.01, and they literally get up and walk out of the church. And so how about instead of us worrying if we're going to get out of here in time that our ham won't burn, that we, after church go home and we make a feast and then we invite people that are out on 3rd Street or wherever, homeless or whatever, bring them into our home and take care of them. Because if you read there, Jesus said, when you give. Did He say if? You see, we, we just, simple little words. It's the English language. And we read that and we go, well, it's, it's you know, like you were saying, it's an option. Jesus did not say that this is the Olympic salad bar. And you get to go to the Bible and you get to go, well, I like that one, but like my son, I only want the little white pieces of lettuce. He's a weird kid. He gets it, gets it honestly from his mom. We don't get to just pick the little white pieces of lettuce. We have to take the whole shooting match. And Jesus said, when you do this, give you another example, one of my favorite passages. You can read it later. Matthew 25, 34 to 40. Love the least of these. I tell people, you know what I love so much about serving in Africa or just serving the Lord in general? Because when I put a new dress on a kid in Africa whose clothing you can't even imagine, because I couldn't even bring you a picture and it do justice. You know why? Because as I say, there's no smell-o-vision. As you put that dress over that kid, do you know that Matthew 25, 34-40 doesn't teach that I'm only dressing that child? It says that literally I'm doing that for Jesus Christ. 
I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better use of my time. Amen? Mm-hmm. So give to the least of these. And I tell you, I know church is a, our hope is a church that does that. We just pull food out of a man's vehicle to bring in here. I know that y'all are serving and y'all are giving to others. So as the Bible tells us, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep up the good work. Amen? I have folks all the time as a pastor tell me, and some of you may have heard this with regards to giving, well, I can't afford to give. You know what I tell them? You can't afford not to. So you want to expand your spiritual portfolio? Then give to God's work, God's workers, and God's worthy. The second thing is time. Every week, God gives us a fresh paycheck of 10,080 minutes. So how good are we at spending it? This is an article I read, Seven Figures, How Americans Spend Their Time. Eight and a half hours a day working. With regards to household chores, the women spend 2.6 hours and the men 2.0. Y'all got some work to do. Y'all need to get home and do some dishes, guys. 2.8 hours watching television a day. 2.1 Eight hours caring for kids. That speaks a lot to what our problem is right there when we're spending more time watching television than taking care of our kids. Amen. Men, 1.7 hours exercising. Women, 1.3 an hour of gaming and 38 minutes of socializing and communicating. I would say, I don't know when that was. Uh, I think it was from like 2018. But 38 minutes on social media, I don't think that quite <laughs> is what everybody's spending on social media a day. Amen. But how good are you, are we, at spending that paycheck of 10,080 minutes a week on things that are eternal? I'm going to give you three uh, things quickly. One is work. You know why they call it work? Because the other four-letter words were taken, right? <laughs> but is work a curse? Because that's how we all think, isn't it? But think back to Adam. God gave him a job. That means that work is a gift. Work is a blessing. And so listen to this in Colossians that Paul writes. Colossians 3, if you want to turn there, you want to note it in. This is how we should come to work on Monday morning with this attitude. And I'm preaching to the choir. Let me tell you. Just ask the girls at the office. They can tell you. I don't always act like I should. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Five ways you can approach work Monday morning. Here it is. One, work with a submissive spirit. Slaves obey. Two, work when nobody is watching. Not by way of eye service. Work when nobody praises you. Not as people pleasers. Work with undivided purpose heartily. And then work for the Lord as your boss. It says you are serving the Lord. And if you work like that eight hours a day, you'll earn eternal dividends. And then prayer and fasting. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Have you ever thought about the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting as something for which you'll be rewarded one day in heaven? You ever thought about that? That's what Scripture teaches. Listen to Matthew 6, 5 to 6. Again, Jesus says, and when you pray. He doesn't say if you pray. He says what? When you pray. 
You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Y'all know the old tune, whistle while you work? What if we prayed while we worked? What if while we did household chores or exercised, we prayed? See, to me, that's what I've said many, many times, one of the blessings to me of hunting as I told one of the bud, uh, guys in our hunting club yesterday, I call it woods therapy. I mean, it's better than Prozac to be out there with the Lord and the squirrels and nothing else. But during that time, to just pray. Before the sun comes up, as you're sitting there waiting on a deer, to pray. Alright, fasting. Matthew 6, 16, it says the same thing. When you fast, your Father will reward you. And so what if we turned an hour of television watching a day into no eating? Be seven hours a week that we would store up in heaven. So work, prayer and fasting, and the last one under this is acts of service. Think about it. Do you think God needs us to accomplish anything? The blessing is that He chose us to use us. And so we should, as the psalmist says, serve the Lord with gladness. And in the process, we'll be rewarded with an eternal paycheck. Read the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 or the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19. The problem is that we want the big stuff with regards to acts of service, isn't it? Y'all seen the, the lady in the cat meme? Y'all know which one I'm talking about. And the lady's saying, I want to go on a mission trip. And the cat says, you won't even serve in the nursery. Right? Listen to this prayer that I found. It was prayed by, I'm a servant. Dear Lord, I want to serve you so badly. I'm literally burning with the fever. I've been on a vacation and I'm more ready than I've ever been. What I need now is an assignment. That's what I want to discuss with you. I've been offered program chairperson for my Sunday school class, but I'm hoping you'll agree with me that that's not quite right. They need a teacher badly in the junior department in the Sunday school but I know too many of those kids. Wild bunch if I ever saw one. It's no wonder though, considering the homes they come from. Is this starting to sound familiar? I would love to help out in the nursery, but that would mean missing the worship service periodically, and I know you don't want me to do that. Besides, my kids aren't even in the nursery anymore. The woman next door can't drive. She needs help with the groceries, and she needs company, but she never lets go once she gets hold of you. How about something different? No nursing homes, please. I can't stand some of what I see in those places. I know you'll think of something. I can hardly wait to see what you come up with. With all my love, I'm a servant. Sadly, we laugh at that. Why? Because we know how true it is. Alright, so your money, your time, and the third is people. So what's in style, the latest fashion. If I got up here in a polyester suit or one of them old English barista's wig, y'all would laugh me out of the building, wouldn't you? You know why? Because they're not in style. What if I wore a crown? Y'all think, well, he's pretty weird with a capital W. You know why? Because crowns aren't in style either. But did you know there's coming a day in which crowns will be in style? 
And those without one will be out of style. It's what it teaches in Revelation 4.4 and Revelation 3.11. There was a little girl at the airport and a soldier had a marksmanship metal pinned to his uniform and she just stared at it the whole trip. And finally curiosity killed the cat and she asked him, she said, where did you get that medal? He said, the army gave it to me. Well, she was no longer impressed. She said, well, in my brownie troop, we had to earn ours. <laughs> and just give them out in my brownie troop. Well, they're just not going to give out crowns on the day of judgment. Amen? You've got to earn it the old-fashioned way. And so quickly, four crowns, the crown of life for believers who patiently endure times of trial and suffering, the crown of righteousness, believers who faithfully stay on course, as we talked about this morning. Do you see in America that people are not staying on course, that there's an apostasy, that people are falling away? Crowns are going by the wayside every day. Third, the crown of glory for elders such as Byron who have faithfully shepherded the flock. And fourth is the crown of rejoicing believers who faithfully share their faith. And that's the one I want to focus on. I call these walking crowns. You know why they're walking crowns? Because the people themselves that will be there in heaven will be your crown. More than an imperishable crown on your head, they'll be there with you for all eternity. Their very presence will be an honor for us and a testimony to our faithful witness and a testimony of our Lord and Savior's sacrifice on the cross. And it'll be a source of supreme and unparalleled joy throughout eternity. Crowns of rejoicing. I can think of some right now. You know why I haven't quit doctrine? and started preaching full-time. One of them is God has not told me. Second is I'm in a mission field every day. And I'll never forget, Mr. Craig, back when we were in the old building, back when we were over by Brighton High School, he came in to see me, stage four esophageal cancer. Sent him home, told him nothing we can do. You're going to die within month tops. And I told him, I said, there ain't anything I can do as a family physician to help you. They, the specialists have all written you off. There's nothing else that I can do, but I can guarantee one thing, that one day that you'll go to heaven and share the gospel with that man. And you know, two weeks later, I got a little card in the mail that said, thank you so much for that seed that you planted in Dad. He got baptized last Sunday. One day, when I die, I'll get to be up there and there will be that walking crown. Think about a man that just in my office two months ago almost died with pneumonia. He was in there. He was so nervous. I was like, what is going on with this guy? I mean, you, you, you survived. You know, everything looks good. No complications from this. You know, no problem. He's just nervous. I just felt the Holy Spirit. Something, something's up with this guy. And so I started witnessing to him. And I said, you know, Mr. Kenneth, I said, do you know the words that I've read that terrify me the most? He said, what's that? I said, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. His next words were this, and it ain't going to be good, Doc. I shared the gospel with that man. I told him, I said, if any person in 20 years I've been in practice ever got saved, you got saved today, brother. 
And I'll be thankful one day that I get to walk with Him for all eternity as a walking crown. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. You know why I'm willing to share with people like that? Because the love of Christ compels me that what He did for me, I want other people to have. I think about Danielle and Jimmy Washington. I think about David Opundo in Africa. A guy we saw one time, he come into the clinic. That's how he came in the clinic. You could hear him before he could sing. Dragging his leg, his legs that big around, looked like gangrene. I said, man, we got to get this guy to the hospital. He's gonna lose. I thought he was going to lose his leg, maybe possibly die. Missy can uh, tell you all more about this story. We sent him to the hospital, and while we, when we came back, you see, we don't just come back and be like, hey, hope everything goes well for y'all. Is that right, Miss Dorothy? We are invested in those people, aren't we? And so we sent them money to help pay for, pay for all his hospital bills, and the whole time all his buddies were coming along, all his Guinness buddies, as Steve calls it, all his drinking buddies, and saying, these Christians done brought you to the hospital, and they dumped you here. You're going to have this bill this big, and you're going to have to pay it. And the day that he got checked out of the hospital, saved his leg, praise the Lord, Steve came, who's on our team, and paid the bill. It should have been stamped Tetelestai. You know what that is? Paid in full by Jesus Christ. Amen? That was the last words that he said on the cross. It is finished. He walked out of there, no hospital bill, a leg that worked, and the next year, that man rode 22 miles on his bicycle to come and meet us and tell us, thank y'all, for not just saving my leg, but saving my soul and pointing him to Jesus. So I can't wait to get there and be with those walking crowns. And so let me ask you something that may actually be embarrassing. How many of those walking crowns are you going to have on the day of judgment? Have you led anybody to Christ recently? Listen to me. Learn to share the gospel. Invite folks to church. Host a dinner in your house. Take interest in a lost friend or co-worker. Start an evangelistic Bible study. Hand out some tracts. Purchase Bibles for a foreign land because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by what? The Word of God. I mean, you got two options. You can be rich towards yourself or you can be rich toward God. And I want to take as many people with me and lay them at the feet of Jesus as possible on Judgment Day. You know why? Because He deserves it. He's the gift too wonderful for words and He's gifted me with eternal life and I want other folks to have that as well. In closing, how's your 401k? 23 days from now we'll be ringing in the new year, 2020. Many of us will get year-end statements telling us how good our stocks and 401ks and saving accounts have done over the last 365. And we'll say, man, it's booming. Honey, look at how much we've got in the 401k now. We might can actually retire before we're 65. But how's your 401k? Not that one, the one that really matters. Your spiritual 401k. Think about it. The next 23 seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, or years, Jesus could come back. I think He'd come back in the next second. I don't think anything else needs to be fulfilled other than Him just come on. When He comes, guess what? All trading's going to be off. 
Wall Street's going to be closed, and Industrial and Commercial Bank of Heaven's no longer taking any new deposits. That's why Adrian Rogers said we ought to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, is coming back this afternoon. That'd change a lot of churches and change our nation if we actually live like that, wouldn't it? And so if Jesus came back this afternoon and he logged on to your spiritual 401k, would it give you chest pains? Would you have any regrets? And if he holds off until December 31st of 2020, after this morning's message, what are you going to do different between now and then to be sure that you're being rich toward God and laying up money, time, and people where moth and rust cannot destroy it? Again, Jesus only gave two options, rich towards self or rich towards God. And so will you commit anew with regards to your money, time, and people to be rich toward God in 2020, that your spiritual 401k can be as bountiful as what Jesus deserves? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for bringing us here today to worship you, Father. Thank you for this time as we celebrate Christmas and celebrate Jesus' birth. Father, we thank you that he humbled himself and came and would trade one wooden object of manger for another one, a cross, that, Father, we could be right in your sight. Father, we just give you glory that Jesus is the gift too wonderful for words. Help us to realize that every single day and every single season, not just at Christmas, and help us to understand how desperately he is deserving of everything that we can do to bring Him all the honor and glory and rewards at His coming. I pray as we come to this time of invitation, Father, that You would just give us a new ears to hear how You would change our lives. And it's in Jesus' wonderful, righteous name that I pray. Amen.